welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Okay, you got lots of questions for me? <laughs> Great. Hit me. Let's do it. Let's talk. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure if it um, if it's in the revelation, mm. but if you talk about heaven and hell, you're not using any scripture of the revelation, or did you? Uh, well, I, I didn't particularly pull out that. There's just lots of stuff in revelation. Um, there's stuff that seems to support some pretty bad things for people that don't uh, choose Jesus. But there's also lots of things like if you read the last two, just what I'd encourage you to do is go read the last two chapters of your Bible. It messes with you. Things like the there'll be people that are wrongdoers, evil people. They'll be outside and all of God's chosen people that love him and accept him and all of that, they'll be inside. But the gates will never, ever be shut. And the church and the spirit of God say, come. That's really like universal ultimate reconciliation language. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, you're out there and you're not in, but the doors are open. And all we're saying is, come, please come, come, please join us. But there's also language of things of, you know, punishment and suffering. And so I think um, like most of the New Testament, there's lots of language um, uh, that can be can be read in different ways. But there's some really pretty profound, amazing um, stuff in there to support each of those different views. Hey, Dan. Um, And so, yeah, so I, I didn't I don't think I quoted. I'm trying to think what I quoted when I talked. I don't think I quoted anything specifically from Revelation, but. You're right, there's, there's definitely stuff in there. Um, there's quite a few different ways we can look at Revelation. A lot of people look at it as a book about the end times. A lot of people look at it um, as a book about 70 AD. Um, some people look at it as a book about now and the journey we're on just now as a church. And so there's, there's a lot of different ways uh, to interpret Revelation as well. And so some of it could be about heaven as an afterlife and hell as an afterlife. Some of it could be about what's happening right now and it's a spiritual uh, book. I mean, it's important we remember at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, this is a book of metaphors and allegories. So it, it says right at the beginning, hey, what I'm telling you isn't physically going to happen. I'm giving you a picture of what's going to happen. And so it's really important we don't get too fixed. You know, you ever read those books, Left Behind series? Did they get big in Germany as well? They were really big in the UK and America. But it was all about how this guy basically wasn't a Christian and his wife and his kids disappeared and all his Christian friends disappeared and then he was like, oh, everyone's been raptured and then he goes through the, the book of Revelation basically is what happens and there's like literally locusts with lion faces on them and I'm like, dude, they told you not to take this seriously. They told you not to take it literally and so you look at it as a metaphor but nope, you took it literally and so there's a whole bunch of Christians that literally think that sort of stuff's going to happen. There's going to be like locusts with lions on their face and there's going to be this and there's going to be that and you know, and it's like you're maybe taking some allegory and not literal text and taking it a bit too literal um, and I think we do that sometimes with hell uh, in lots of different areas and Revelation could be an area we do that as well so there's there's plenty of stuff in Revelation that seems to support annihilationism, plenty of stuff that seems to support eternal torment, and plenty of stuff that seems to support Christian universalism if you make it about the afterlife. If you don't make it about the afterlife, then it's not relevant to that, I guess, in some ways. Or it could be relevant to both uh, right now and the afterlife. Um, but yeah, does that answer the question? Or 
I don't know. Did you have yeah. certain passages in mind in Revelation that you were I, thinking of? I mean, it's just, I think if, if we read Revelation, it's a lot of stuff that is not uh, that much fun. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I'm not sure if how, how much I need to look into Revelation. And I have also some friends, they say, but I don't look into the Revelation because it's not any uh, right meaning for me at the moment. Mm. And I'm, I'm not really sure if, I, if we talk about this whole forgiveness topic, if it's okay to let this just out of the discussion, all the stuff that is in there. Yeah. But I think, like, you look through Revelation and it's... Not a, it's not a book that's incompatible with what we're talking about at all in whichever direction you take it and I think it's, it's much like any of the Bible I can warp it into whatever I want so I can make it about a really vindictive angry God who's going to pour out wrath on everyone that doesn't you know, say a certain prayer and get forgiveness but I can also make it about a loving and just God who's forgiven everyone who's accepted everyone and he lets people sit outside the gate if they want but the gates never shut and he says come you know it's a there's different ways you can interpret passages within Revelation and and so I, I'd encourage you to study it I'd encourage you to read it but I'd encourage you to study it and read it open-mindedly and so reading it going you, you know we talked about the Jews how before they had a view on any passage they would try and come up with seven different interpretations do that with Revelation holy crap you're going to have like I mean because you could get loads of different interpretations it's, it's such a book of allegories and metaphors and imagery and, and all that different stuff that there's lots of different ways you can interpret it um, and so I would encourage you to approach it like that so don't approach it to say does this say what my friend say it says or does this say what I've always thought it to mean or does it say what Phil's saying he thinks um, which I've not particularly done um, read it and say what are the different ways it could mean and pray through it and go on a journey with God and go what what makes sense to me right now what lines up with what God's been talking to me about what, with what God's saying to me um, and is that an honest and, and, and acceptable way to interpret this scripture um, there's loads of different ways you can interpret Revelation that's why it's such a hot topic and debated um, you know it's funny that a lot of the evangelical church debate, uh, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and, you know, all these different things of like, well, how will it work out? And actually, the big discussions that they're having is still within one view of many, many views of Revelation and the end times. So they're, they're still having this big debate of like, well, it could be anything within this tiny little box. And actually, the truth is, it could be any of those, sure, but it also could be like all this stuff here as well. Um, and so there's, there's really great stuff out there. Um, a really, really good book uh, that I really uh, highly recommend if you want to look at Revelation, if you want to look at Daniel, if you want to look at Matthew 24, these sort of um, passages that we often ascribe to the end times um, is a book called Raptureless. So Rapture, L-E-S-S, um, by a guy called Jonathan Welton. It's really, really good. And his first uh, edition didn't cover Revelation, but his second edition does cover Revelation. It's really, really good, really interesting, really challenging. Um, and it is, his his name even is just quite controversial, right? Raptureless. There's no rapture. But that's quite obvious as well. If you look at the scripture, there's nothing to support rapture. That's a, that's a very new theology. It's about 150 years old. Um, so no one believed in a rapture until about 150 years ago. So <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, 
And so, yeah, so there's lots of stuff that can be um, pulled out of Revelation because it's a book of imagery. It's in the same way, you know, the thing I love about Jesus is he talks in parables. Um, And the beauty of parables is it means something different to every person that hears it. Because when you hear a story and you hear a story about multiple people who do different things, different people are going to resonate with different people in the story. You know, you watch, if everyone sits down and watches a movie, not everyone uh, sides with the same character. Not everyone feels like they're the same person. You watch uh, Friends and not everyone thinks they're Chandler. I don't know, do you have Friends in Germany, the old sitcom from the UK, US now? Or whatever, you know? Like, um, if you have a sitcom with like five or six main characters, not everyone thinks they're the same character. Yeah, exactly. All the new ones or whatever it is. But, you know, you think, oh, I'm like the funny one. And someone else is like, oh, I'm like the quirky one. And I'm like, oh, I'm like the pretty one. You know, like, and, and I think that's the beauty of telling a story of parables of something like Revelation is it engages us. And we go, well, it could mean a whole bunch of things. So what does it mean to me? What is God going to say to me through this story? Um, and I think that's really profound. It's really exciting. Um, but it also should mean that we're going to be less dogmatic about it. So for me, like even with um, this topic of the afterlife that we touched on this morning, I have my view and I strongly believe my view because I've studied it extensively that I believe what I believe, but I don't tell anyone else to believe what I believe because it's not absolutely black and white. It just isn't. And so why would I tell someone it's black and white when it's not? I'm going to tell them like, hey, here's some of the things I've learned. Here's some of the things I've studied. This is why I think X, Y, or Z. But I'm not going to tell you, you have to believe X, Y, or Z. You can believe what you want to believe. And, um, and so I, th- I think study and, and engage with the scripture to the point where you can say, I can live with conviction. I can live knowing that's what I believe. But at the same time, I hold that belief with open hands. If God picks it up and says, you're wrong, that's fine. Um, because otherwise we build what we believe into an idol. So if what you believe can't be challenged, it's an idol. That's, what, that's the definition of an idol, something we elevate above God. If God can't challenge you to say, hey, what you believe about hell might be wrong or what you believe about the end times might be wrong, all you've done is built an idol. Um, and I think a lot of people in the church have an idol. Um, if they're not willing to discuss it and engage with it, if anything, it shows a fear. Um, and so a lot of people, when you say, oh, I don't believe the end times the way you do. I think it could be this. And they get really defensive and angry and they start attacking you and, you know, and they start saying, well, you can't talk in church anymore or you can't be a part of our church anymore. All that shows is I'm scared of your view. It doesn't show I'm secure in my view. If I was secure in my view, I'd engage a conversation and say, hey, tell me what you believe. I'll, I'll challenge you and I'll, I'll discuss it. And uh, I think we should always be open to a discussion, to a dialogue, to questioning um, because it, it allows us to develop further and grow further and allows the people around us to develop and grow further. Um, so yeah, I, I think Revelation, there's lots in there and there's lots that point to different uh, interpretations. Um, but I would just say be careful that you pull it out of uh, what it says on the face value. So just a glance and go, oh, it says that, so it must mean that because that's not what Revelation was written by. Like, you know, So there's lots of stuff in there um, how many you've heard things about like you know 666 and the mark of the beast have you heard that sort of stuff yeah so like at, at cursory glance you're like oh that's really dangerous that's like whatever everyone's gonna get like 666 stamped on their head or their hands or something or whatever people think do you know that 666 was slang for Nero the, 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 the Caesar the emperor Nero who was the ruler in Rome um, 
and Nero was the worst of all rulers against Christians. He uh, he would uh, rape Christians. He would cut off their legs and like, stick them on a pole and set them on fire so he could light up his garden. So his garden was lit up by Christians on fire, alive. Um, uh, he just he fed people to the lions, all that different, all those stereotypes Christians get thrown to lions. That was Nero, um, and so what we often fail to see is some of that is written to Christians in this dire, horrific situation, and it's a message of it's gonna be okay. But like things like six six six, it's not like some mystical in the future, or or that the number six 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 is bad. It's that that sign in the Greek was the slang for Nero. It was like a it was um, like an undercover message where they could talk about Nero without talking about Nero. You know, if someone got that letter and looked at it, they wouldn't immediately see, oh, someone's bad math in Nero. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important we, we dive deep and we go, well, what could it have meant to the person then? Are there different ways to interpret it to a 21st interpretation? 21st century interpretation is usually a really bad interpretation of the Bible because none of it was written to a 21st century person. And very rarely to the 21st century person. Like, we don't have the same questions a Christian had in Rome as they're getting burned on a stake. You know what I mean? These types of guys had real questions of like, dude, we laid it all out on the line. Where is God? Where is Jesus now? Is he abandoned us? Like, those are the kind of questions they're asking. And that's the kind of stuff I think Revelation is talking about. Not, you know, oh, will Jesus come back? And when will he come back? And what will it look like? I think that's less... um, specifically what it's about than, than kind of addressing the actual issues that, that people were going through at the time um, so yeah that would be kind of some of my thoughts on Revelation but there's so much good stuff you can read on it and lots of different views um, I've got a few questions okay hit me with one yeah just one one at a time okay you, you'll get loads of time we cool. can go cool. through lots um, uh, whenever I talk about whenever I talk about sort of grace and, and the goodness and of God, um, I get thrown back at me, um, uh, and, and you touched on it earlier. I think when you said that the two aren't separate entities, so you said people threw back at you. The, the justice is a just God, and I've had sovereignty, sovereignty thrown back at me, okay. and this kind of idea of we're under Him. But also, more often than not, people throw back at me discipline. God wants to discipline us, like because we're we're His, uh, we're His kids. He's our dad. And therefore, he wants to discipline us to show us. Is, do you think there's a, is is there a tension? Is that tension okay, um, or or is or or, or perhaps are they misunderstanding, or, or am I misunderstanding? Or I mean, I'm not hard lying anything, um, but I think what people hear is, that, and what people are, uh, continue to hear is, is that you're you're giving us a glimpse, but not the whole picture, mm-hmm. and so actually. This God's God's got a discipline, and we need to be told that, and we need to be aware of that as well. Can you speak? Into yeah, that? absolutely. I think um, so. For me, it's really, really important. Like we talked about earlier, of like God is love, yeah. and in love there is no fear, yeah. and fear has to do with punishment. Yeah. Um, and so I, I see punishment as absolutely incompatible with God of love. Yeah. Um, however, like discipline. It's part and parcel of life. It's part and parcel of growing. It's part and parcel of journeying with God. And so um, if you look at the Bible, there's actually not that much mention of, of that 
process, process of discipline. But a, a good example is, it does talk about discipline in Hebrews, doesn't it? And if you look at that word, the word in the Greek is, um, the word, it's, it's like a phrase, it, it, it's, it's kind of, the word would be like child uh, trained. Um, and so they would use it for an example would be like, you know when kids, they get to the place where they can stand, yeah. but they can't yet walk. So as soon as they take a step forward, they're just like face plant. Um, it's kind of funny, right? But like they, they, they can crawl. And they can stand, but they just can't walk yet. And so what happens is the parents hold their hands, don't they? And they kind of let, let them kind of use their legs, but they don't have to have balance. And, and it's that. It's, it's child trained. It's, yeah. it's training a child to walk or training. And, and why does the parent want the kid to walk? So that the parent, so the kid can walk, so he can enjoy life, so he can be more grow and just and, and, and embrace all that he has. Now, there's a few things in, in life that I will say. So for God, he, he child trains us, he disciplines us, he helps us grow, he, he gives us what we need to. And sometimes child training hurts. Sometimes you fall flat on your face or you face plant and hit a, a table or something with your face and knock your tooth out. You know, it, it, sometimes it can go badly when you're learning and growing. Um, but there's never any desire for punishment from that parent. Um, I will say this, that there's always a disconnect a little bit when we talk about a parent and a child compared to a God and us in some ways. So like maybe a parent is insecure. So the reason they want their, their kids to grow is so that they look better. And they think if my kids aren't getting the perfect grades, then I'll look bad. And so then they, they do have really ulterior motives in some ways. But I think a good parent, a loving parent, it's not for their benefit that they want their kid to grow and to, and to have an amazing life and to not have hurt and pain and suffering. In the same way that God didn't want sin in our lives because sin destroyed things and it hurt us and it brought us pain. Um, you know, that's, that's what discipline looks like. It's like, I want to help you out of that place of sickness, of suffering, of hurt, of sin. Um, but it's not out of a punishment of like, you screwed up and I hate that and I'm really angry and I need to punish you. But it could be a, hey, let me help you out of this. Do you think, like, do you think as, 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 you know, I sometimes get told, you know, when a child reaches for the fire, we smack them on the wrist. Um, and that, it, that would be perceived as punishment, but it's not as bad as the punishment that they would receive. And perhaps that's, yeah. God, how, that's how God shapes and deals with us. Yeah. Um, is the parent punishing that kid? Is there any punishment in it? I guess not, because they haven't done anything. It's, it's, it's literally an instinct of like, look, I've got two options right now. You burn your hands or you get a little slap on the wrist. It's going to sting for a second, but you'll get over it. And afterwards, maybe the parent will go, hey, the reason I did that, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to harm you, but you were about to walk off a cliff. So I grabbed you quickly off the, off the, the thing. Or you were walking onto a road, so I grabbed you off the road. Like I violated your free will for a second there, but let me explain why I did it. And let's figure out how we can avoid that in the future. Um, and so I think sometimes you have to, you know, you look at, uh, it's probably not a perfect analogy, but like you look at small kids who don't have a full understanding. Sometimes they can't be reasoned with in the same way. Sometimes you have to violate their free will. You know, sometimes they run out onto the roads and you just yank them off and, you know, like uh, you just pull them back onto the sidewalk. Um, like that's hard for them to understand. It's hard for them to process. But there's always a thing of, as a good parent, you want them to understand, hey, this wasn't because I hate you. It wasn't because I don't want you to have free will. I just didn't want you to get hit by that truck there. Um, and that's going to hurt and you would die and let me explain death to you. You know what I mean? These are big topics to try and explain to a toddler. But I think God's kind of doing some of that sometimes of like, hey, you were running straight off a precipice and I redirected you. And you might be really upset that I redirected you, but trust me, 
it's okay. Like, you're validated in being upset. You're validated in being angry with me right now, but I'm going to explain why that was. And also, I'm not going to do that again. If you understand why and what's going on, then we're not going to have to have that kind of relationship in this area. But I just, I had no choice here. It was, you know, fall off a cliff or you get upset with me for five minutes. But never in God's heart is there punishment. It's always, I want to help you grow. I want to help you understand the ways of the world, the ways of life, how to not bring suffering upon yourself. Um, And so, yeah, I think sometimes we do really destructive, stupid things. Like, I think that's pretty evident to all of us. Um, We don't even need other people for that to be the case. Like, I think we just are good at that on our own. Um, And I think sometimes God um, helps us grow and learn. uh, And he often as well, he'll use... The, the misfortune and the consequences of sin to help us grow as well. And so sometimes sin can be destructive and there's real poor consequences in it. Um, maybe you murder someone and you go to prison. God can use that consequence. He didn't send you to prison. He probably doesn't even want you to be in prison, but he can use the time in prison to bring you about as well. And so I think that sometimes cause and causality are really, um, it, it, it's dangerous for us to, uh, to ascribe uh, this is the problem I have with sovereignty you mentioned sovereignty I think sovereignty is just like such a farce I mean it really is like the, the words um, that um, is translated as sovereignty is, is this word in the, uh, it's mostly used in the new, uh, new international version which we love in the UK which is really unfortunate because it does make some really interesting translation jumps that word uh, that's translated sovereign it, it really just means almighty it means he's, he's all powerful almighty but it doesn't mean that he's manipulating everything as a puppet master and i think that's often what we hear when we hear sovereign is we think of this god that's um in control of everything and causes everything and everything that happens is according to his purposes and his will and it's like come on don't be stupid and this is where you get the calvinists that go yeah that young girl was raped and killed but god's ways are higher than ours and he he knew that it would ultimately bring about good this way or that way and you're like come on you that disgusts me i get angry when i hear that sort of stuff you know like they're arguing oh well yeah that earthquake destroyed that entire religion thousands of people died but you know god was behind the tsunami of 2008 he was doing something there and you're like god was he was behind you know the 9-11 attacks so, you know like okay it wasn't him that did it it was these uh, terrorists but like he nothing happens without his you know say and and i'm just like come on this is messed up up. Um, and I think sovereignty, we need to understand that sovereignty doesn't mean he's um, he's in control of everything. I think the, the saying God is in control is really quite um, crazy. Um, I think God is over everything. There's nothing he's under. There's nothing that he doesn't have a, uh, 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 a higher place over. So yeah, cancer is beneath God. Cancer isn't too big for God. But God doesn't control cancer either at the same time. He chooses to operate in, in a place of free will. Uh, again, depending on how you interpret that. Did we talk about free will and, um, and open theism and things like that? Did we talk about that yet? Yeah. 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 And so uh, I would probably lean more towards open theism rather than free will. Um, but either way, you know, I don't see God as a puppet master controlling every single thing. And so, yeah, like you might get cancer and you might learn a lesson. But to believe God gave you cancer to teach you a lesson... It's pretty messed up, right? And in the same way that if a kid gets cancer, their parents might teach them to 
really value life and to really have empathy for others that even in your hard situation there's other people in this children's wars that are worse and you should love them and you should think of them and you should maybe share your toys with them and you know that you're teaching in the midst of a terrible situation to be an even more amazing person but no one would believe that you wanted that situation for your kids you'd much rather teach those lessons in a better environment right um, even if it took a bit longer to learn i'd rather the kid didn't have to have cancer um, and so i think a lot of times it's dangerous that we the problem is god's so good at turning things around to good that we often attribute what he turned around to god so uh, i got cancer but then i was miraculously healed so god gave me cancer so i could be a witness to people and it was like no god healed you of cancer that you got like but don't attribute that to god necessarily um and so I think those are quite a few different things that I would throw into the mix of that. Um, but yeah, God disciplines us, of course. Like that's that's great. But as soon as your discipline has punishment in it, it's not the discipline that, that, that God works with. In the same way, the judge justice. Yeah, God's just. But as soon as your justice is exclusionary and punishment uh, focused, that's not my God. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of discipline. Uh, most of the time, sometimes it sucks. Um, but in the same way that going through hell, you know, we talked about hell. Like, I, I strongly believe that hell is a process of, um, it, I will say this, right? So whether I'm a Christian universalist or not is kind of irrelevant. But what they believe about hell, of hell is this painful process of, of working out your own stuff so that you can get to a place where you can have more pure, intimate relationship with God. I agree with them that that's a process on earth. I believe that we go through stuff in life where we're not connected to God properly because we believe poorly about him. We believe poorly about ourselves. We've got all this stuff going on. And actually, as we work through that, it's working through hell. Feeling apart from God, feeling rejected, feeling alone, feeling isolated, all these kind of horrible feelings are really hell on earth. Um, and so discipline and, and, and walking through these things, they're not necessarily fun, but they are restorative. They are for good. They are loving. Um, and oftentimes they're not even given by God. It's just consequences of what we're doing that God is going to work with and work through. Um, does that make sense? And is it helpful to yeah, that kind of really context? Really, really yeah. Um, yeah, I could probably say more on that if, if you need kind of yeah. more uh, nuance or whatever. Um, Timon, did you have a question? Yesterday we talked about... Galatians 1.16 and reveals Jesus in him sorry say it again where it's, um, it's written that he reveals Jesus in him and not to him to he revealed Jesus that was inside him yeah. yeah. rather than Jesus being a separate thing yeah okay yeah because in our German translation we had he just reveals Jesus not in him or to him just right okay okay maybe to him and in the greek i think it's also not in him yeah it's very uh, ambiguous um i i wasn't quoting uh, galatians so i think when i was talking about that i was quoting um uh 2 corinthians 5 yeah maybe um so is it galatians 1 16 that you said has Yeah, it's pleased to reveal his son in uh, to me. But that's Paul. 2 Corinthians 5 is what I was going for. If you got the, the wrong Bible verse, it was really good to get the one in which the same. <laughs> so. 
so like here's here's um uh, this is the ESV translation which is uh, a literal translation you can debate how literal because everyone has a different translation but in um verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5 uh, it says all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation so in that passage it talks about how it was in Christ God was reconciling the world so God was in Christ Um, let me pull up the the Greek because I'm not I'll be honest I'm not familiar with uh, the Greek I probably looked at it at some point but um, we'll have a look on let's see what it says Where is it? 18. All things are of God who has reconciled himself to Um There's possibility as well that this comes down to translations. Does it say that in all of the German translations, or just specific ones, like the most common one? Or? Yeah, we just looked at Galatians uh, 1.16, because I think you talked about this as well. When Paul wasn't a Christian, but Jesus was still in that time in him. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> Did I really talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Because we just looked at this. Um, so, what's... What's the actual um, question then? Because I, I might be uh, thinking about a totally different topic then. The the question is, what was Jesus in Paul before he became a Christian? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I think you wanted uh, also to say that, um, to say to us that Jesus was in him before he was, to reveal Jesus in him because Jesus, Jesus was in him before he became a Christian. Man, I do not remember saying and this. You use the analogy of, of the the un, the un, mm-hmm. and then said we reveal righteousness, righteousness, yeah. righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I would probably say that's a process you go after you you would get saved. But um, yeah, I don't think I would have said that because it's super controversial. I not, might not disagree with it, but I probably wouldn't have said it. And well, let me ask you this: so in Colossians it says that in Jesus all things were created. For Jesus, all things are created. Through Jesus, all things are created. And all things are held together in Jesus. Nothing exists without Jesus holding it together. So is there anything that Jesus isn't in? There's nothing that Jesus isn't in. There's nothing that Jesus isn't containing and holding together. Um, First John talks about that as well, of like how all things were made by and through and for Jesus. Um, and so... Uh, for me, I don't really um, have a problem with the concept of Jesus being within people. Um, I think that people would have a bigger issue with, well, what does that mean? Is the Holy Spirit residing in them? Are they saved? And again, it goes back to, well, what are you talking about? What does saved mean? You know, like I think it becomes a bigger topic. Um, I think there's probably a few different views you could hold, and I don't know how much it, um, it needs to become a forefront issue. If you don't want to believe that people have 
Jesus, Holy Spirit in them, that's okay. Because I, I think the major issue is, the, the, the big issue is, who are people? And, and I think as long as you can see people are made in his image and likeness, made in the image of God, they've been forgiven by God, they've been accepted by who he is, they've been made righteous. And when and, and, if, and if you leave it there and say, and when they accept God and they accept that truth, then Jesus comes to live in them, then the Holy Spirit resides in them. That's fine. Like, uh, I, I would never have used, I'm really confused because I just wouldn't use Galatians to say that Jesus was in Paul already. I feel like you misunderstood something I said. I'm really. What was? When did I say it, and why? You, was there context? You, you, were saying, you were saying this challenges our theology in that it, it, he was already there, and it's, this is a, this is. You, I, I can't. To be honest, mm. I can't remember if it was Galatians or whatever. Um, but you, I think the point that you were making, making was that he was already there, and that he was already in Paul, and he was being revealed to him in him. Mm. Okay. Cool. I don't remember this. It doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm assuming since three of you remember it and I don't, that I'm just not with it because I've got a bit of a cold. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think um, we consistently see throughout the New Testament, there's, there's definitely flavors of this if you want to believe something along those lines. Um, I love uh, in, uh, I think it's Acts 19, he goes into Ephesus, doesn't he, Paul? And he's wandering around the, the main center um, and uh, he's looking at all these different uh, temples unto different gods, and he's looking at all the different statues of different gods, and he comes across one, and he's, he's obviously thinking, like, how do I reach these people? How do I preach to these people? And he comes across a statue, and it says, to the unknown god. And he says, hey, he says, everybody, you worship an unknown god, right? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, the unknown god. We all worship him, but we don't know. He's unknowable. No one can know him. And he says, I know who the unknowable god is. He says, the unknowable God is Jesus, and he, he preaches this gospel message, right? And he says, in him, you move and breathe and have your being. And he says that about pagans worshipping pagan gods. He says, in Jesus, you move and breathe and have being. Like he's saying, you don't even breathe without Jesus in you breathing. You don't even move unless Jesus is moving in you. And so he's saying to pagans that you're connected. There's something going on. There's, you're connected to this bigger, greater entity that is God, much more than you know. And he wants to know you. Like he wants you to know him. Um, and so there's definitely this flavor all throughout um, the, Old Test- uh, the New Testament that might point to something along those lines. I- I'm not sure I would um, intentionally uh, say so categorically that that is the case uh, I think that, but there's room for it if, if you can see what I mean by there's definitely some scriptures that point to um, some of that stuff but I, I don't think it's a it's a, a very strong position in the New Testament I think that you have the burden of proof and so you don't have a lot of proof if you if you want to teach that Jesus and Holy Spirit reside in people before they accept him um, but I think you can teach it and you can hold that position I just uh, I think it's harder to teach than uh, than what I said and then there's a decision that allows that to, to happen or or whatever um, but I know some great teachers that would teach both sides of the, the equation so I, I wouldn't throw anyone out and under the bus for holding either position um, and I think in my opinion um, it still it doesn't change things as far as are you in relationship with Jesus that's what matters whether he's in you or not is kind of irrelevant 
It's do you have relationship with him? Are you accepting him? And so that's what Paul's doing, isn't it? He's saying you move and you breathe and you have your being in this, this thing that is called Jesus and he's in you and you don't even know it. Do you want to know him? Because he came to reveal himself in the flesh and we killed him. We didn't even recognize him. And he comes and he says, I forgive you and I accept you and I love you and I want to have a relationship. So he's still, he's still pushing for them to connect with that. He's not just saying, hey, he's in you and that's all good. He's still saying, so connect, so, so have relationship with this person of Jesus. Um, and so I think as long as you've got that element in place, I don't really mind where you stand on the, on the, the semantics of where is he, when is he, why isn't he. Because I think... There's too many scriptures on both sides. You know, God is in all. He's through all. Like, you know, Jesus holds everything together. There's nothing that Jesus isn't holding together. And then it's like, you know, but Jesus will come and fill you. Or, you know, Holy Spirit will come and fill you. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a complex one. You know what I mean? Uh, Holy Spirit filled this room. And it's like, well, was he not in the room before? You know what I mean? It's like, how does that work? Um, and so I think these are some of the questions that I think we get a bit um, we can get a bit semantical on and we can get focused on the, the, the nitty gritty when actually it's kind of pointless, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't have intentionally said that as a big theological statement, certainly. Uh, I might have thrown it out as a, an aside to think on or something like that. Um, but yeah, if you read through the Gospels and the New Testament, you'll, you'll see parts of that um, in there. There's a possibility of that. Um, but you also see plenty of stuff that seems to suggest that's not the case. So um, I wouldn't build a huge theology on it. Um, so certainly not if you want to make friends in most evangelical Christian churches. <laughs> Another question? Uh, Go for it. Um, and you might have touched on this um, with the whole forgiveness thing. We're all forgiven um, and it's not necessarily a salvation issue right so it's more kind of fluid or not as linear a process as this 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 and so um but there is there's a passage that jesus talks about the unforgivable sin right the the blasphemy of the holy spirit yeah um i ain't got a clue i've never looked into it and I, I like but it, i mean it's there and i'm, I'm sort of like well, where, where do we sit with that yeah and how do we how do we how do we interact with that Let me just quickly, because I can't remember the um, the exact verse. Um, yeah, so it is in Timothy. Um, so here's one thing I'll say. So this is a, a verse that is really isolated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like here's this one thing that you can do, and, and that's that. Um I have problems with using it to exclude, which is pretty much what it is uh, used for all the time, because I really struggle with, it's not described what it is. Yeah. Like, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't detail what it is. Church history has not been detailed on what it is. So right from the beginning, if you go back right to the early church fathers, they have different opinions on what it is. And I'm like, dude, if this was like the one thing you could do that somehow God would be like, no, I can't forgive that. Um, I'd worry about it. But the biggest thing for me is in first Timothy, Paul says, I was a blasphemer of the Holy spirit in the past. And you go, so is Paul not saved? Was he unforgivable? And so I think, Oh, there's something more to this. And so, um, so when Paul's listing off all his sins and how sinful he was, he says, I was a blasphemer. Um, I was a blasphemer of the spirit and, and, and God forgave me. 
Um, and so I think um, I'm not going to get hung up on it. I don't have a really great answer of, oh, this is what I think it is. A lot of people would argue that the, the unforgivable sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to um, experience the Holy Spirit and to um, to bear witness to the Holy Spirit, have the salvation experience, and then choose to go, no, I don't want it. Um, and it would be throwing the Holy Spirit out of, you know, and turning your back on what God has given you. Maybe that's it. And I could understand that in one sense, right? The only thing that's unforgivable is to accept your forgiveness and then go, ah, actually, I don't want forgiveness. Well, yeah. The only thing that's unforgivable is to say, I'd rather be unforgiven. Maybe that. Um, but I think, again, and, and some of the early church fathers, that was kind of the position they held. But I just think it's not clear. And I'm not going to um, dogmatically make a theology, especially if that theology leads to this is the, the one thing you do that kicks you out, you know? Um, because I, I see throughout the, um, even the rest of Jesus' teaching, um, and certainly throughout the, the epistles, I don't see exclusion uh, language in there that allows for, oh, you could do this one thing and that's you. Um, I see a lot of inclusive stuff. Um, and I I see a lot of pretty messed up stuff forgiven. Um, and so it's, it's a troubling verse. I'm not going to deny that. But at the same time, I'm not worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I, I really am not. Um, and certainly what I will say is blaspheming him out of ignorance yeah. um, is certainly forgivable. Okay. Because Paul says he did it. He says, in the past, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but he was good enough to forgive me. Um, and he lists a bunch of his sins. But So Paul was jealously, zealously on fire, passionate, like, you know, like he's just like, no one could have a relationship with God except through this Jewish perfect, you, you know, relationship. And he, he's killing Christians and all sorts of stuff. Apparently in the midst of that, he was blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but God was good enough to forgive him. Um, and so maybe it's a thing of, well, once you embrace God like that, that teaching, once you embrace God and then you turn around to go, actually, I don't want this. Um, Maybe that could be it. It seems like a good get out of jail free. It's a good way to teach it to be like, ah, there, there you go. You can. But I just think it's not clear enough to say that that is what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd lean maybe more towards that. But if you've got a better answer, I'm all yours. That's for sure. Um, but you can type in just unforgivable sin into Google, and you'll have days of different ideas and theologies, and some of them are pretty like cuckoo. Like, if you look at it on the surface, you're like, is anyone saved then? I mean, like, it's crazy. You know, like people are saying, oh, saying that something God does is of the devil. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like half of Christianity does that, right? They point at charismatics and go, oh, they're healing, but it actually is the devil. Or the charismatics are pointing to, like, you know, the fundamental conservatives and going, oh, they're saying this, but it's actually of the devil. They're religious or whatever. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, everyone's pointing fingers and saying that, that what by that definition, they'd be blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Um and I doubt that's the case. I really doubt that, like, the majority of Christianity is going to hell because they perform this unforgivable sin. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what Jesus was specifically at. And to be honest with you, I'm a bit frustrated that he wasn't more clear about it. Yeah. But, yeah, there you go. Thanks a lot, like, yeah, yeah. apostles. Great job documenting that one. Um, so, Or at least following up with a couple of questions. And Jesus, the one thing, one thing that you can't be forgiven for. You want to go into that a bit more? <laughs> Flesh that out for us? Yeah. Apparently not. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I couldn't say any more on it, probably. Uh, but yeah. Any other questions? Come on, guys. Three days of teaching, and you've got no questions. I doubt that. 
Not to mention like weeks of like iDestiny and you've no questions. I was the last days, um, the forgiveness topic was just a big topic, but Timo um, told us yesterday about it and at the beginning of the week I met Erwin and talked with him about it, and so that's, yeah, not that big topic at the moment. Cool. Yeah, so I'm just enjoying it to hear as much information and, yeah. <laughs> Got a question? That's all you if you've got more questions then. Ready. Um, of course. <laughs> um, I love questions. The, the born again thing, and I know I know you touched on it again, you touched on it a little bit with the Jesus dealt and interacted with people, and we should always uh, exegete or, or contextualize or, or whatever, um, and, and, and so therefore, what does it mean for us today? Um, some of the some of the stuff that I've come up against is is um, well if you we're just throwing stuff out then why would you throw it all out? Do you see, do you see what I mean? And, and so and so um, this this question of born again do we need to be born again? Now my thing is you know uh, for some people right yeah um, for other people perhaps they wouldn't put that language to it or, or whatever or, um, but do you think there's a there's a place where actually something does need to happen and something does need to shift and so and and are we are we responsible for communicating that to people do you see what I mean mm -hmm. or are we okay to go do you know what let's just love on people um, and without calling them to a point of decision does that make sense yeah. um, or is it okay just to go look Jesus spoke with this person and he said to that person there was a point of decision and they had to be born again in order to, re to receive the fullness and all of this stuff or um, yeah essentially what I'm asking is is there, a, is there a point where we have to in our teaching say look there needs to be a decision that is made one way or the other hmm. it's a great question I, I'm hesitant to make a formula I really am yeah, sure. um, yeah. because I do see lots of different even you look through like anyone that says you have to be born again and go okay so what does that look like yeah, can you bring yeah. me the bible verse for it and then what's fun is just write down all the bible verses of people that get saved mm -hmm. especially in Acts right write them all down different people that get saved because this is post Jesus it's the model right yeah, yeah. never the same some people say, oh, you have to confess them with your mouth and be baptized. Other people, you just confess. Other people don't seem to confess immediately and just have baptism. Some people get baptized and have to speak in tongues. You know, and so there's lots of different ones. And so you go, well, what, what's, what's born again to you? And they'll give you the one and they'll give you a Bible verse. You go, okay, well, what about this family that didn't do that? Or what about this guy that didn't do that? Um, and I think, I'm, so I'm very hesitant to, so do, like Jesus says, unless you are born again, no one can enter the kingdom. Um, and so I'm like, do you have to be born again? Yes, in the context of what Jesus said there. Yes. But I don't know if, unless you are born again, we can then inject any sort of framework we want into that meaning and say, oh, when Jesus says, unless you're born again, we mean come to the front of the service, say this prayer, renouncing your sins, saying, you know, you will never do this, and ticking this box. Like, I think that's a big jump to presume that um, our model of salvation fits into that that category of born again i i once um I, you'll have to forgive me don't teach on this so i'm, I'm not really up on a, a, a years ago i read it but um 
there was a, a scholar who um, was a Greek scholar, and he talked about being born again. Excuse me, being a born again, and he talked about the phrase "born again" that's used there. That phrase um, is a similar phrase that a conductor would use to say, like, um, "Let's take it from the top." Let's let's go back to the beginning. And so you know when when you you're conducting an orchestra and they mess up and you go, all right, but let's take it from the top, and you go, let's go right back to the beginning and start again. Um, and so uh, I I couldn't reference you what that is, what book I read it in. It was years ago, but I, I like that imagery of like, hey, unless you come right back to the beginning and rethink this all from the scratch, like. And, and that language obviously is born again. I mean, Nicodemus says, wait, what are you saying? That we crawl back into our mom and come back out again? Or, you know, like, that's not going to work. And he's like, no, I, you know, obviously I don't mean like physically we do that. But but I think mentally we come right back to the top beginning, right back to the start. And we go, right, how, are, how we've seen this is wrong. How we've approached this is wrong. I need to come back from the beginning and approach this with a whole new way um, in a whole new life and a whole new creation. Um, if you look at, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the, the New Testament, um, the epistles, repent, 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 repent. It is constant. You need to repent, the kingdom of the hands, unless you repent, unless you repent. You ha- need to repent if a man doesn't repent. So again and again and again. And what we do in uh, our Christian circles is we make repentance, subscribing to a prayer, ticking a box, saying you're deeply sorry and I'll never do it again or you know falling on your knees and crying and sprinkling dust on your head or whatever the model for repentance is but uh, Rebecca said it yesterday repentance uh, that Greek word metanoia just simply means meta change noia or nois mind um, and so it's this moment where we go oh you know that moment where you change your mind which is always quite a profound moment isn't it when you realize you've thought something completely wrong and you need to think it completely differently and it's a humbling moment. It's uh, one you lose all pride in a metanoia moment. You lose all pride when you repent because you realize, I'm so wrong. I need to look at this all from scratch completely differently. Um, and so I think there's, there's a real beauty to that. In fact, if you look at repentance in the Old Testament, uh, there's a few words. But one of the words is um, this word um, teshuva. And it comes from two roots. It comes from uh, uh, tov, which is good. So you, it's used again and again and again through the scriptures to describe God, to describe his creation, to describe us. Tov, good. Um, and shov, which is um, like this returning. But it's it's more than returning. It's returning along uh, a path. And and so it's this teshuva, this language for repentance, as it's translated in the Old Testament, was to return to the right path. Um, and in one sense, actually, it's more used to return to your right self, the path you've always been made for, who you truly are. And so this change of mind is often, it's its not um, sometimes going to a completely new thing, but actually it's maybe coming back to the original thing, coming back to who you truly are, being born again. Um, and so I think there's some elements of that all going on within repentance, salvation, born again. Um, and so for me, is born again really important? Yes, but I would look at it as a moment of change of mind. Um, so that might look like I've changed my mind and I am so regretting the way I've lived my life and I'm weeping and crying and beating myself up for a second. But then I realize, okay, but God's better and gooder and, and I'm on my way. Or it might look like dancing naked on a table because you're so happy, you know? Or it might look like you somberly go, huh, I was wrong. Well, oh, I'm going to do this this way. You know, it will probably look like you change your life, but it isn't the actions necessarily. Our part in it is to, is to facilitate whatever that looks like. 
I think so. Yeah, I think it's to give people room to to have that moment, to have that that back from the top, to have that I'm changing my mind, to have that I'm going to return to the right path. And I would say our role it says in um, Romans two four it says the goodness of God leads to repentance, and so. Our role is to be ambassadors of goodness. Romans 2. 2.4. Um, so our role has got to be to be ambassadors of the goodness of God. We are here on earth to represent the goodness of God because that is what leads people into repentance. That's what leads into salvation. Um, that's what gives you that born again moment. And so if you go back to Acts and you look at all these moments that people get saved, it's when they encounter this good God, this God who is good, this God who is amazing. Um, and I think... If we are to be dogmatic, we should be dogmatic about that. Yeah. If there's anything to be dogmatic about, it's about when we get around people that haven't had whatever we call born again salvation experience, the one thing we can be sure of is we need to be revealing the goodness of God to them. We need to be preaching peace. We need to be preaching love. We need to be preaching joy. We need to be preaching uh, kindness, compassion, mercy, you know, all these attributes of God, forgiveness, acceptance. Um, because it's in that place that people get saved. And actually, this is when you look at um, something like universalism. So again, um, whatever your views are, the different views of hell, a lot of people are really anti-universalism. They, they kind of attack the universal crowd because they're like, well, who cares? Why would you even preach the gospel, right? And I think that's such a messy thing because do you know what that reveals? I, I love people saying these are so revealing, right? So you say, well, if everyone's saved, why would we even preach the gospel? You know what that reveals? Reveals the only reason you're saved is so you go to heaven. If everyone's going to heaven, well, why even preach? Why even go and evangelize? Uh, because it's much more than just going to heaven. It's about having a relationship with God. And actually it reveals that a lot of evangelicals are in so they don't get burnt. They're in so they don't go to hell. They're in because they decided to tick the box on the fire insurance. And that was basically what the prayer was. It was fire insurance. They don't care about relationship with God. They care about not being in hell. Um, and if, if, if your message is to terrify people so they avoid hell, I would just encourage you to start preaching heaven. Right? I would start preaching the goodness of God, who God is, relationship with Jesus, eternity with Jesus. I don't need to tell you about hell. I don't need to tell you about suffering. I tell you about goodness and love and compassion and those things. You're going to want to join. Um, and so I, I just think... I don't want to be someone that motivates people by fear. I don't want to be someone that motivates people by um, selling bad news and telling people how terrible things are. I want to be someone that motivates people by showing them the beauty of the gospel, by showing them love, by showing them compassion, by showing them a better way. Um, and I think that is always more attractive. Um, and so actually what I have found is people that are uh, universalists, uh, this is a few in our, our church, I find them to be more passionate about reaching the lost, not less. Because actually, for them, it's not about heaven and hell. It's about connecting with Jesus. And what? not only that, they have a really good message. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're ever going to say there's a good message to present, that's a good message. You're saved. Everyone's going to be saved. It's great. Come on. Join the party. As opposed to, well, God's going to burn some people for eternity. But if you say this prayer, you'll be fine. Right? I mean, that's less good a message. I mean, that's one of the big things that people struggle with. When you go out in the streets and you preach this, people go, well, wait, what? So God loves me, but if I say no, he's going to burn me forever? How is he love again? 
Right? I mean, so like it's, it's, it's a hard message to go out and preach. And so actually, some of the people that are have this uh, news that is, quote-unquote, too good to be true almost, you know, actually they become some of the best evangelists out there. Um, and so I think when we're um, worried about we might not preach salvation, we might not get them born again, I, I would say, well, actually, let's look at some fruit here because actually people that are doing this are really gathering people they're pulling people off the streets they're pulling people out of it left right and center and bringing them into a relationship with jesus the only issue is it may not look like what you want it may not look like what you think a relationship with jesus should or they may not tick a box pray a prayer you know read the bible a certain amount of minutes every day um and if that's your issue i'd say you've got bigger issues than worrying about other people (laughs) um but yeah, uh, it would be a few thoughts. Is that helpful, or it's can I talk helpful. about that more no, no, specifically? I, I that's really, really helpful. Okay. Um, really did you have uh, any more questions? Because I, you guys, or if you guys are coming up with questions here, you're welcome to. <laughs> have a nice early uh, end to the day, but looks so. You got anything else? Not really. You can literally ask me anything as well. It doesn't have to be connected to this. I mean, I might not be able to answer it, but um, yeah, I have thoughts on everything. Is, is, the, is the, wrath, the wrath of God, does that not exist anymore? For me, wrath of God is synonymous with love of God. Okay. And so, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to put it. Let's say that God is love and can only love. His love is just poured out on every person. Um, imagine there is something on someone that is hurting them. What does that love do to, to that thing? Yeah. It, it just destroys it. It eradicates it. And so I'd say that's very real and very um, present um, in that when we screw up and when we mess up, it, stuff causes us pain and hurt and God's wrath is upon that thing not us but that thing to to destroy it to undo its work to and, and I think that's what the message of the cross is is wrath that destroys sin that overcomes sin and so um, I think the wrath of God is very real but I wouldn't put the wrath of God in opposition with love I would say the wrath of God is God's love if that makes sense um, are you guys working with translation stuff there is it wrath that is the issue? Yeah. W R A T H. Yeah, but it's just yeah. being angry. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I mean, so let's put that in a really simple way. Um, you absolutely love a girl, right? You've got this girl. You're in love with her. You think she's amazing, and um, someone attacks her. Your love is what makes you mad that someone's attacked her. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're mad. You, you have anger. Now, obviously, with God, we're not talking about people. We're talking about sin. We're talking about stuff that, that, that comes against and, and attacks. But, but that thing that harms the person you love, that anger isn't apart from love. It's within the love. It's, it's part of the love. And you wouldn't um, have anger if it wasn't for your passion and your zeal and your desire and your love and your, your seeing intrinsic value and worth in that person. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important that we don't separate those two. It's like the justice thing. I don't want to separate that from love. I want to say justice is loving. 
And when it's not loving, that's not God's justice. That's a different type of justice. Um, so yeah, same with wrath. Wrath is loving. And if it's not loving, it's not wrath of God. Um, yeah. Anything else? What is what is your view? On like you said about the sort of the you know there's a whole various different views, but you don't want to say your what's your view? Um, I I would see myself as an ultimate reconciliationist. I I think I think God's just too big, too good, too powerful. Uh, not to get what he wants. Okay. Um, I, I just... I don't see God um, not being able to bring about his purpose. Now, I do think that many people will go through an extremely painful process to get there. And if I, if I may be as bold, I think we will all go through hell, even Christians. And I think if you challenge that, just look at your life. Like at times you go through hell. So I think we'll all have a painful process of, um, the scriptures talk about um, fire that burns away rubble and chaff and and all this kind of crap and all that remains is gold and silver and precious gemstones. I think that's not some people are chaff and rubble and crap and some people are gemstones. I think it's, we all have some crap in us going on, you know, just hurt and pain and suffering and whatever else. And we all have who we truly are, our gold, our silver, our precious gemstone. I think on some level, whether we do it on this side of it's like death or on the other side, um, I think the beauty of being a Christian, the beauty of starting this journey with Jesus is we start to work on this stuff, right? We start to undo the pain and the suffering. We start to discover who we truly are. But I don't know many people that by the time they get to death are perfect. They still got stuff they're working on. So I think we all work through um, an experience of hell. We all are exposed in the presence of God and it reveals some stuff in us that needs to be dealt with still, um, that we need to walk through. And I think that, for me, hell and heaven are the presence of God. That's, that is hell and heaven for me. It's whether it's now or later when we die, it's being in the presence of God. But sometimes being in the presence of God is going to reveal stuff and it hurts because we have to deal with it. We've got to get through it and process through it. Um, and it's not to say that you inherently are sinful. I think you've just got sin stuff on you and you've made some bad choices that have hurt you and caused you uh, pain. Um, so that, that's kind of where I stand. Um, I, I'm open to annihilationism. I'm pretty closed off to eternal torment, if I'm honest. Um, but I could be wrong and, and I, I'm, I'm not closed off to the point where I would never say it's possible that I'm wrong. Um, but the more I study, I'm like, I really struggle to see it that way, if I'm honest. Um, but I, 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 I'm fairly convicted. I've, I've studied it a lot. I've really read a lot on this. I've, I've, I've looked into a lot, and that's my conclusion. Um, I would never tell someone to take the same conclusion because of my conclusion. Um, and so, I, and at the same time, I'm also open-handed about it. Like I said, I hold it open-handed and go, let's see what happens, because God could reveal to me tomorrow, hey, Phil, I'm not that good. This is what I'm actually like. And Okay, I was wrong. But yeah. But there's no need to have any one position. Sure. I think this is the thing. Yes. You can have any one of those positions or you can have none yes. of those positions. Like, it just isn't important. It's not the central message of the gospel. Um, but you will get your head kicked in if 
But if you're in the wrong position, you're going to hell forever. Yeah. And, and this is this is the natural progression, right? So if you look at something like this, you look at people in eternal torment, their belief in that. The problem is they might be slightly accepting of annihilationism because it's kind of compatible. But what they, they find is people that disagree with them, well, because they have such a rigid, hard view, those people are going to burn forever in hell, right? And whereas the people on the other end of the spectrum are like, ah, oh, you're wrong, but <laughs> it's okay because it's all going to work out, right? And it's often we see this when we uh, operate with, here's a really legalistic group of people that are really fundamental and operate in the law. Here's a group that are really gracious and chill and relaxed. The people under the law that are more fundamental might look at people that operate in a bit more of a gracious way and go, these guys are too liberal, it's black and white, and therefore they're on the out, and they're going to suffer for eternity. And the people on the gracious side are going to go, ah, they're just legalistic, that's okay though, we all have a journey, I used to be legalistic, and they'll figure it out. And so you always have, with the, with the two ends of the spectrum, unfortunately how it works is um, the if you find yourself on a more fundamental side, it's going to be really hard for you to get on with people that are more liberal. If you find yourself on a more liberal side, it's going to be a bit easier to get on with people that are fundamental in some ways. But the truth is, the liberal people can be just as fundamental as fundamental people sometimes. So you can be like, oh, everyone's included and everyone's loved and it's all about grace, but you guys are excluded because you exclude others and you're legalistic and you're this. And and what we end up doing is being just as fundamental in some ways. Um, So yeah. But yeah, that's that's how I would see things, um, and you're perfectly entitled to be wrong. Um, but I'm right. Nice. <laughs> Anything else, guys? No. Yeah. You good? All right. Let's finish up. Have a nice early day. Thank you for listening to the Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.